You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. This is Greg Stokes and Doug Stokes with Lanyap Podcast. Today we're going to talk about a variety of topics, namely today the inflation numbers for 2021 were released. Prices over the course of the last 12 months went up 7%. According to the Wall Street Journal, the Labor Department said Wednesday the Consumer Price Index, which measures what consumers pay for goods and services, rose 7% in December from the same month a year earlier. That was the fastest since 1982 and marked, marked the third straight month in which inflation exceeded 6%. This is, these are the highest inflation numbers since the 1980s. And the question, of course, is, is this going to continue? And is this also going to affect markets? Those are the two things that we are concerned about here at Stokes Family Office. Doug, what do you what do you think about those two particular items? And how does this all relate to the marketplace? Well, in terms of inflation in general, I think it's uh, it's pretty amazing. It comes sort of comes back to what we've talked about previously, which is that um, push and pull between what we think of as uh, short-term inflationary pressures related to you know coming out of a pandemic in which it's hard to get people back to work and there's a lot of a demand but maybe less supply and so prices increase with longer-term deflationary trends around you know technology around capitalism in general around aging demographics etc part of me just wants to think that this is this is temporary, maybe not tr- uh, transitory, as the Federal Reserve was saying throughout 2021, and they dropped that term. But at least something that is not permanent, like maybe f- from the 1970s and 80s, but will trend down over time. I th- found it funny is that Charlie Bolello, who we read a lot, quoted Jerome Powell, and he said that we will not raise interest rates preemptively because we fear the possible onset of inflation, we will wait for evidence of actual inflation or other, other imbalances. That was uh, Chairman Jerome Powell saying that. And then what he states right after is inflation over the last year, home prices, 19.1%, rents, 17.8%, which is a huge impact on uh, expenditures, obviously. And then producers price index, 9.6%, consumer price index, 7%, uh, and PCE, 5.7%. Yeah, these are crazy, crazy numbers and, um, and more than is a, a major miss on the Federal Reserve's part in terms of what they expected inflation to be really coming out of the pandemic. I think it has you know, maybe short-term impacts on markets, uh, but I, I tend to fall into the camp that inflation will come down over time because of these other factors that are in existence pre-COVID that are continuing, and that's generally around technology, around demographics and and those aren't going away. You know what's interesting over the last year in terms of what specific the Fed, the the Fed breaks down all of the particular components that like for example gasoline, used cars, etc. all these items that have in, in, increased over uh, year over year and specifically the, those two that I just mentioned gasoline and used cars are the, are amongst the highest in terms of inflation numbers gasoline year over year is up 50% used cars up close to 40% over that period of time, like you would have thought that. And meat, fish, and eggs are, are up 12% uh, 
uh, utilities are up 25%. I agree. Eventually, things are going to start to normalize. I, I don't see the whole car aspect uh, going long, going uh, well into the future. I just uh, That seems to me like it's a, a moment in time. And I think a lot of this is going to be a moment in time, too. And if you look at like where the United States stands on a global basis now, like relative to other countries, Japan, for example, is at the at the bottom end of the spectrum, and U- the U.S. inflation rate has been relatively close to the to the bottom end of the spectrum for a long period of time. But Japan, year over year, was like less than one percent inflation. And then, if you go throughout the world, you've got from there you go to Saudi Arabia, also in the ones, Switzerland, China, etc. And then you have to really scroll down a long ways to see you know, the United States. We're closer to Mexico, Russia, Poland, Brazil, Turkey. India, South Africa, et cetera, than we are to a lot of these developed countries. And I think that that's also going to normalize over time because we're, we're, we're very similar to these lower growth, lower population growth countries than we are to Mexico, Russia, Poland, Brazil. So I think things are going to eventually normalize on that end. And I think that some of the, some of the particular uh, areas where there's been a lot of inflation, like used cars, gasoline, supply is going to come online and and tamp that down a little bit. But it'll be certainly interesting to see how this all plays out over the next 12, 24 months. I think it's uh, this makes me think of, of two particular comments. The first is, it does seem like the Federal Reserve is a lot more market-facing today than it has been historically. And I think the Federal Reserve is well aware that the major recessions historically have been during you know, rate hiking cycles. Now, we talked about last week that there's really no correlation between the start of raising rates and imminent recession. And that generally speaking, this is all Ken Fisher's data that, that bull markets last on average, I think it was like 3.3 years post the start of a rate hiking cycle by the Federal Reserve. But if you look at just data historically on raising rates, Generally, recessions have occurred uh, at the end of a rate hiking cycle with the idea that the Federal Reserve overstepped and probably raised rates higher than the market could withstand, and that, that resulted in inverted yield curve, which predict, you know, is a historical predictor of recession. My intuition is that the Federal Reserve is very market-facing and saying they don't want to get it wrong this time and, and start raising rates too early with the idea that markets can't withstand it. And, and so they're going to be eyeing volatility as a determinant of what to do about interest rates. That's one side. Um, I think the other side, I, I remember um, reading an article, this was last summer, that Ben Carlson put out on A Wealth of Common Sense around the amount of spending that went into the World War II effort and debt that the United States took on and uh, the resulting inflation related to mass spending and then all these, all these uh, people coming home from overseas from the war and, and looking to settle down, buy houses, buy anything, and uh, inflation went way up. And that ended up being sort of a Goldilocks scenario in which um, the amount of debt and spending that was taken out during the war was offset somewhat by the depreciating value of the dollar through inflation. And so the cost of that that effort ended up being less because of the, the basically the inflation tax. And so it has me. It reminds me, and we'll we'll post this in the notes that specific article. But uh, it reminds me of that 
piece that Carlson put out last uh, summer of 2020 talking about how this is um, very reminiscent of a war effort and this is what inflation looked like during that period. And I think that um, there's others that, that spoke on this as well, but it, it definitely seems like that's a realistic scenario that we get high inflation for a short period of time and then it normalizes. Right. And I definitely agree with your assessment of what the, the Fed's attitude towards the markets has been. During the uh, March 2020 period, the Fed took unprecedented action in terms of injecting liquidity into the markets to the extent that they started for a while there. It was it was for a few days, really, you couldn't like there was like no market for corporate bonds, like nobody was buying corporate bonds. Like uh, we had instances where we had just been transferred in a, a portfolio of corporate bonds and we were just simply weren't getting bids back for when we were trying to liquidate those bonds. And the Fed ended up stepping in and essentially agreeing to purchase a significant quantity of corporate bonds at a certain uh, quality. And that that's unprecedented from the standpoint of what they've done in the past. And they took the attitude in that period of time that they were going to do whatever it, it took to keep the markets afloat, which is what the, they did the exact opposite in the Great Depression when they, they basically like crimped liquidity into the markets and their obje- objective was to, to like flush out all the excess. And obviously that turned out to be horrible. So I think they're, they've definitely got an eye on the markets and the, and the smooth functioning of the markets. And if they did overshoot that and this is a consequence, then so be it r- relative to where we could have been at that period of time if they had done nothing or if they did the exact opposite, which is what they had, d- had done prior to the Great Depression. This brings me back to uh, and just on inflation, my thoughts on there's an adage related to the cure for inflation is inflation, meaning that if prices keep going up and up and up, then uh, people are just going to at some point stop spending, and so which will drive prices back down. And so I think that there's a level of inflation in which it becomes so much that either things get overbuilt, like think about real estate, for example, where uh, if rents are going up 20% year over year, then the cure to that is is just more supply. Um, so a builder is going to come into the market with the idea that they're going to be able to get higher rents and that those rents will grow. And then, obvi- and then obviously that comes down. And then I just think that people will decide to do less because they don't have the disposable income to be able to spend 20% more on a specific item than than it was available last year. Their wages are not keeping up with that sort of level of inflation. So I think that these things just tend to normalize because of markets in general and uh, capitalism and market participants. And then I just think that trends are not the same as they were in the 1970s. And we don't have a a boomer population. We have a declining population and, and we have better technology and more globalization and the one thing I'm, I'm really curious about, though, is as it relates to what you described in, you know, 49% year-over-year growth in gasoline prices. I tend to think that those, not maybe not that level of growth, but that, that sort of level of prices will persist simply because we're in, what, six years into a major energy recession in the United States. And the amount of investment that's gone in this area, we were looking at this through a a private fund that we looked at in uh, Q4 of last year. But there's just no capital going towards uh, exploration and, and production of oil and gas. And so if there's a massive uh, demand for 
for gasoline through travel or for through just population growth worldwide. And there's been less and less um, capital going towards that area for various reasons. Um, that just seems like something to me where there's just a massive supply demand imbalance and it takes a long time for that to, to normalize. Yeah, I, I think that is a reasonable uh, attitude that oil prices are going to stay high for a while. I think the other thing too is that obviously the direction in which the world is going is towards more towards a electric battery and more efficient automobiles, more efficient anything that runs on gas, gasoline. But I definitely think that that's going to be a a longer transition than most people think, especially if you look at just the outside of the developed countries like the United States and, and Japan and China is now arguably a developed country. If you if you go to any sort of second or third world country, there's really, which is a huge percentage of the global population, there's very little in terms of like batteries and cars and things like that. And that's going to take a long time to uh, pan out. I also think the interesting thing too is the, the fact that there has been such little investment lately is also driven by ESG investing, which is, for those of you that, that don't know, is environmental social governance. There's funds that are committed to ESG investing, and, and those specifically preclude investing in certain areas of the market or sectors of the market that are deemed to be anti-environmental, anti-social, or, or have poor governance. And so there's been a lack of money as a result of that that specific investment philosophy going into oil and gas relative to the E aspect, the environmental. So I think that there that per, that particular supply issue is going to persist, and then I think the demand issue is going to not diminish as quickly as people are are thinking relative to clean uh, fuel technologies. I couldn't have said it any better. I, I just think that I, I think ultimately the world will get towards. You know whether it's EVs or clean energy in general, it's just a. I mean, that's a massive, massive project over decades. That's um, not going to happen overnight. If you look at the diversification quilt that Ben Carlson posted recently, and we'll also include this on our show notes. Essentially, what he does, what he does, is he takes the top performing, or he takes every particular sector of the market over any given year and shows the relative performance of that particular sector. So for example, in 2012, emerging markets was up 19% and commodities were down 2%. And then each respective year, the, the quilt changes. And that in 2013, small cap was up big and emerging markets was down. The whole idea behind this is it's important to stay diversified and not put all of your eggs in one basket. And if you look at naturally, people want to put their money in what's worked recently. And so the whole idea is that this is an educational tool to show you that what may work one year doesn't work the next year. But if you look at this particular chart, it shows you that commodities, which is what oil is, have been over the last, I think this is the last 10 years, the commodities are indicated by a blue box in this particular chart. And it almost that's the almost universal underperformer over that period of time. With the exception of last year, commodities were one of the best performing sectors. And the question is, does this particular trend persist where commodities are at the bottom of this particular chart and the performance relative to other asset classes? Or do things revert back to some sort of relative overperformance by these particular, by, by commodities and oil in general? And it'll be interesting to see how that all pans out. Yeah. If you look at the previous 10 years, commodities were in vogue and they there was... 
uh, term dubbed the commodity super cycle. And the, the whole idea there is that commodities go through these massive waves of increases followed by massive waves of uh, decreases. And a lot of that is inflation driven as well. And if you look back at 2021 in general, um, the best performing asset class in 2021 was REITs, real estate investment trusts, um, public REITs, and then and private REITs as well. Uh, with the idea too that the REITs in general are made up of uh, a lot of asset classes that were distressed during COVID. I um, mean, it was the worst performer during COVID, down 4% in 2020, up 40% in 2021. If you think about it, it's, it's um, you know, malls, offices, things like that, that were that had no visitors or people defaulted on their rents or things like that. Um, a lot of that came back in 2021. But that's also been an historical asset class that's performed well during inflationary times. And so it's interesting to see that in 2021, in which inflation printed its highest level since early 1980s, the two biggest performers were the ones that are generally thought of uh, from a historical perspective as the best in hedges against inflation. The other one um, in terms of hedge against inflation that people don't think about is uh, the third best performer from last year and the best performer of the last 10 years is, is large cap U.S. stocks. Uh, with the whole idea that if you're a large cap company, you've got some sort, which is the, one of the top 500 companies in uh, the United States. Uh, so these are billions and billions of market cap at the, at the lowest end of that. So the idea is that if you've reached that level of valuation, um, market capitalization, then you have some sort of competitive advantage. And the increase in prices or inputs to your company for a lot of these companies can be passed on to the underlying customer. So I find that interesting that, generally speaking, three of the major inflation hedges that people talk about, REITs, commodities, and large cap stocks, all did their job in 2021 to combat the, the rise in inflation. I think that's a very interesting point. So right now, every, everybody's very bullish on U.S. stocks because they've performed so well in the recent past. Over the last 10 years, they're the best performer. But if you look back at the previous 10 years, commodities were amongst, and, and oil and gas stocks were amongst the best performers. For example, in 2008, 2009, the chairman and CEO of all the big oil companies were called to testify in Congress because they were making too much money, essentially. That's kind of transitioned big tech is now that has assumed that sort of sort of role in, in the, the collective mind of the markets. I saw something uh, earlier today that Apple is now like close to 7% of the uh, market cap weighting of the S&P 500 which is like the largest weighting in any in one particular stock in the last 40 years. So it'll be interesting to see how this all pans out. The big uh, idea behind this diversification quilt is to show you that it's important, number one, to diversify because nobody knows what's going to be the best performer over any given period of time. And just because it's the, the best performer one year doesn't mean it's going to be the best performer the next year. But it's certainly been a period in time that's been very good for large cap U.S. stocks, and there's a, a collective attitude that that's going to continue, but it'll remain that remains to be seen. And just piggybacking on this subject, uh, over the last decade, large cap stocks have done in the 16% range, and international stocks have done in the 8% range. It's interesting to break down. So first of all, 
everybody's been calling for a reversal of that uh, for for as long as we've we've been in the business. Right. Vanguard, BlackRock, all the big money managers think that international have thought in it and continue to think the international is going to outperform domestic. Yeah. So um, Wisdom Tree sort of broke this down. Wisdom Tree is an asset manager, uh, an ETF provider, and they broke this down as to what attributed to the United States' outperformance over the last decade versus uh, international markets. And as uh, as Americans and as having a home country bias, you just generally think that the reason we outperform is because we're just a better country and we have better companies. And I tend to think that that's objective, but maybe that is a subjective point of view. Um, but Wisdom Tree broke it down, and and uh, and I think this is really interesting. But basically, what it says is that differential, that really that eight percent annualized return differential, coming from U.S. to at performance from U.S. to let's call it Europe, that is primarily or has been primarily driven by uh, multiple expansion, uh, meaning the price to earnings multiple got wider than in the U.S. than it did internationally. And so, if you look at like sales growth, if you look at uh, dividends, if you look at you know profit margins, uh, take away the exchange rates, things like that. The really one glaring difference is that the U.S. price to earnings ratio got uh, higher than, um, than international. And so it's kind of a, a gut punch to an American to think that the, the U.S. stocks weren't you know, that much more impressive from a sales growth, from a earnings growth, from a dividend yield, from a profit margin, et cetera, than their international counterparts. It was a lot of it was driven by expansion of price earnings multiples, which makes sense because the biggest companies today are the tech companies, which have higher PEs than than the non-tech companies. So, I would expect the trend to reverse at some point, just because it's not it isn't a whole lot of um, just better companies. It's just uh, companies getting better valuations in the U.S. I agree with that. I do agree that America is the best country, best major country from the standpoint of running a business. From the standpoint of markets being open, our legal system is great. So I think that that there is some we deserve some additional multiple to our peers elsewhere. But I agree with you that that at some point in time, at least in some future year, international is going to outperform the United States. (laughs) But we've been betting on that for a while, um, and we'll see ultimately when that happens. Um, And that did happen. If going back to that period of time from the from the 2000s to 2010, so sort of like the last, the prior decade, international did outperform the U.S. over that period of time. So, and it's really anybody's guess when that's going to happen, but it seems seemingly uh, like clockwork that the U.S. has been outperforming international. But uh, eventually, that, that presumably one at least one year international win in that in that battle. Greg, I want to come back to the. Um and we got a few more minutes left on this, but I think this is interesting. It goes hand in hand with our discussion earlier on inflation. And uh, one thing I said was the the cure for inflation is inflation, meaning that the higher prices go at some point, that reverts back to the mean because people will stop spending. More people will come in and produce goods because of those higher prices to try to increase supply to that market because the demand is there. And uh, that brings that brings to an interesting article that you shared with me earlier that uh, you all posted around 
what they consider their growth index, which is basically people filling up U-Hauls, renting them and taking them across the country. And uh, it turns out that ranked across all 50 states. Well, let me just start with the top three states. Number one is Texas in terms of where people are going. Number one is Texas. Number two is Florida. Number three is Tennessee. And the, the bottom two, number 49, number 50, and number 49 is, is Illinois, and, and number 50 is California. And there seems to be some sort of correlation there. And so, and maybe you can point it out, it seems pretty obvious, but thoughts on that? Well, right. You've got the top three you mentioned, Texas, Florida, Tennessee have a 0% state income tax. So, and then you can, you can rel- relate that to California that I think the top income tax, um, income state tax marginal bracket is like 13% now. So I lived in California for five years. I went to law school out there in San Diego. It's arguably the prettiest state in the country across the board, but it gets to the point of where you, if you have a significant percentage of your income that's going to state tax, you start looking to other options. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, but I think that that trend is probably going to continue. I saw over the weekend that the California legislature is looking at raising taxes even more up to a a marginal rate of like 18%. And I think that that, those kind of um, policies are probably going to continue to encourage their residents, especially in the higher uh, tax brackets, to look at other options. I think also just in general, the the, the, it's kind of like a snowball effect once, once people get more comfortable with the idea of their friends and neighbors moving to these states, then it becomes something that's more palatable to them as well, too. So I think it's something that kind of builds on itself. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and this is all stemming from the elimination of the uh, state and local income tax deduction from the 2017 uh, change in tax law, which um, we thought was going to get, at least that cap was going to get uh, raised in 2021, but that bill didn't pass. So you don't get a deduction for the state income taxes that you pay on the federal level, which makes the the burden even more living in these high tax states. And it just goes back to, I think it's a, it's a competitive process between states. I mean, if you're offering a 0% state income tax and somebody else is offering a 13% state income tax, it must be a really compelling reason to live in that state with the uh, with high income tax rates. And obviously, California, you get a lot of bang for your buck in terms of beauty. But it, it gets to a point where people just can't take it anymore and they have to pick up and leave. And as you said, it's if you get comfortable with the idea, if your friends are doing it, it makes it easier to do it, especially if businesses are moving too, which we see a lot of to Texas, Miami, Tennessee, uh, Nashville is, it has a lot of new uh, entrants in the business community. Right. Those places are getting cool. And, and the other thing is that, and just, this is just speaking regarding the cities in Texas that we're really familiar with in, in Houston and Austin, San Antonio, the, the public schools there are fabulous in this particular, and uh, Dallas as well, too. You can get in, there's some great schools that you can get your kids into by virtue of your property taxes as well, too. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of compelling reasons the cities have become cooler over the years. I, I think that it's hard to compete with some of these world-class cities in California, like uh, San Diego, Los Angeles, Santa Barbara, San Francisco, et cetera. They're just naturally beautiful and great cities themselves. But the cities, the big cities in these these states that we mentioned, Texas, Florida, Tennessee, are starting to have better dining scenes, fun stuff to do that that can compensate for the fact that they're they're not in California. 
Yeah. And I think the, I mean, in a completely competitive market, you know, the California would respond by seeing this uh, U-Haul report and, and I'm sure they have the data themselves it would respond with, with incentivizing these people to stay likely through uh, lower tax rates and, and other incentives for businesses as well. Uh, but sometimes politics doesn't really work that way. So um, they seem to be going the other direction, which from my perspective, will just compound the issue. But who knows? We'll see. Right. We'll see. I love California and I'll, I'll go there every summer. So it's my, it's my, one of my favorite spots, but it's, it's certainly something that it would be a deterrent to ever settling down there. If you, if you had to look at the just dollars and cents of what you're paying to live there versus paying to paying to live elsewhere. Well, we're coming up on 30 minutes and we try to keep this uh, each episode to a 30 minute window. So we're going to wrap up and just want to say thank you for listening. Please share, like, subscribe, provide comments. Uh, This is our our fourth recorded episode and we're getting better and better with each one, hopefully. Uh, But we hope you continue to listen and and share. And uh, this is Greg and Doug Stokes with uh, Lanyap Podcast, uh, produced by Stokes Family Office. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.